Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Farrell. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Hey Ryan, how are you today? I'm doing great, Pam. How about yourself? I'm good. It's almost October. Can you believe that? No. You know, uh, the year has flown by, and yeah, next week it will be October. Yes. And so what does that mean? Lots of pink, right? Lots of pink. Lots of pink, which is not bad, right? I mean, it's okay. It's okay to have some pink everywhere every now and then. Yes. And for those that have been um, living under a rock it's breast cancer awareness month and so um i think it's it's important for us to educate ourselves about and um, maybe some things that we can do to help prevent breast cancer such as uh, mammograms yeah you know there's a lot of information out there right if you start uh going to as we always say dr google uh mm-hmm. when do you start when do you not when do you stop how often uh, this, that, and the other, right? It can be a convoluted mess. But I tell you, uh, as we've always said, we want to go to the expert, right, Pam? That's right. And that's no different than today. We're super, super excited uh, to have um, our guest, Dr. Gail Bentley. Um, I, I met Dr. Bentley, Pam, years ago uh, here in Amarillo and uh, did a lot of uh, projects together. And, and when she was at uh, one of the breast centers here and uh, man, just really, she actually spoke for us for a couple of, of um, conferences that we, that we put on and uh, just really enjoyed uh, her education and educating us. So that's why we've reached out to Dr. Gail Bentley today. Dr. Bentley, how are you? Well, Ryan, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a very exciting time, October. It is. It is. And this is this is your month, right? I mean, being a cardiologist, yeah. uh, this mm-hmm. is one of those months that uh, you guys tend to get uh, busier than normal. Yes. Yes. We get very busy in October and we stay busy until around uh, mid-March, you know, and, and then things taper off a little bit in the summer and then we start the cycle again. That's right. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and kind of your your expertise. Yes. Uh, So I um, am a graduate of UT Southwestern Medical School, and I stayed at UT Southwestern in Dallas for residency in radiology. And then I did a women's imaging fellowship um, in at at Parkland at UT Southwestern. And thereafter, I worked for 10 years in Plano, Texas, uh, doing about 60% breast uh, imaging. And um, and then in 2010, uh, I joined uh, High Plains Radiology Group um, to be predominantly at Harrington Breast Center. And in 2014, returned uh, to Plano, Texas to do um, to start a new breast imaging, um, which mainly uh, centers on high risk patients in breast MRI. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Sounds like we have somebody that knows a little bit about mammograms. <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah. I told you, you know, we, we, we committed to finding experts and uh, Dr. Bentley is, Certainly uh, someone I would classify 
in that category. That's right. So Dr. Bentley, can you help us um, read between the lines about the guidelines? One institute says, you know, this, another one says that, what is recommended? Yeah, so you'll hear a lot of different recommendations out there. And um, the one uh, recommendation that American uh, College of Radiology has, the ACR has always been firm on is that annual routine screening mammography begins at the age of 40. Um, so, and, and here's why. Uh, women who, when we detect a breast cancer in a woman between the age of 40 and 50, you know, we have to get right on that. That those tend, those in younger women, they tend to be more aggressive. So waiting until 50, uh, you know, people are taking a chance. Mm -hmm. You know, so I would, we, I would venture to say many of our listeners right now are saying, if I had waited till I was 50. Um, my breast cancer, I mean, was detected when I was 42 or right. 37 uh, and, and all of that, you know, it's so, right. yeah, it seems, you know, we're in a, in a day and age where we talk about um, prevention and early detection, it seems very counterintuitive to say, wait till you're 50. Right. Yeah, and the, especially with a routine screening mammogram, which can be scheduled uh, so very easily. You don't need a doctor's order to do a screening mammogram. Any woman anywhere in the United States can call any breast center and say, I need a screening mammogram. And they say, okay, when can you come in? It's as simple as that. It's, it's absolutely simple. So what happens with a screening mammogram for those that have never experienced that? Right, so you go for a routine screening mammogram, a technologist who is specially trained to take those mammograms, and, and, and the women, let me just tell you, the mammography technologists who do it are special people. I mean, they choose that field, they're compassionate, kind individuals across the board, I can say. Um, and and they take a, they'll do your mammogram, they'll explain the whole thing fully to you, and then you leave. It takes, 15 minutes, maybe, uh, from start to finish. And then within about two weeks, you get your result. And it's either A-OK, -okay, fine, see you next year, or we, we see a little something that we want to take another look at. Uh, and, and it's as simple as that. Is it painful? You know, it is not painful. Everybody has different levels of discomfort. And, and I would say to anyone who has a, um, you know, tends to have uh, more pain than others, that if you take a couple of Tylenol or, uh, you know, a, a Motrin or an ibuprofen two hours before you go, um, that kind of fixes everything. I've never had uh, pain with a mammogram ever. And women have to know that, you um, they, as the patient, are really in control of the compression. So when the technologist says, okay, now I'm going to compress your breast, you can always say, oh, that's enough, or, you know, and, and, and it's very simple, very easily done. It, you are in control as the patient. So, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that um, you mentioned is that you're very involved in, in high risks, high-risk yes. patients and high-risk women. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Bentley? What exactly constitutes a high-risk patient? 
And then I really uh, know that some of those folks are concerned about risk factors um, of when they should start their mammograms. So if you could kind of educate us on that, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So high risk patients are patients. Um, there are several things that constitute and, and make a person high risk. One is a first degree relative with breast cancer. So if, if you're a 40 year old woman and you say, yes, my mom had breast cancer at 50, you definitely need to be uh, doing routine annual screening. If you are a 70 year old lady and your daughter was just diagnosed at 35 with breast cancer, your personal risk factors go up. So any first degree relative, mother, sister, daughter, that's definitely ups your risk factors. Um, there are also uh, patients who have um, had mantle radiation to the chest, lymphoma patients, for example, when they're when they're young, if they have a lymphoma and they have radiation, that ups the risk factors. And those women are generally considered high risk. Um, other people who have certain syndromes that they know about, um, such as uh, there are some um, Lynch syndrome and a couple other of genetic abnormalities that we know about. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we talk about uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2, and those two um, genetic mutations are well known to us, and we knew about those before 2015. So, but then after 2015, an entire arm's length of additional genetic mutations we now know about, things called like CHECK2 and NBN and ATM, and there's a whole list of them. So if you have um, family members, even a second degree relative who had ovarian cancer, or somebody in your family who may have had breast cancer younger than the age of 50, it's important to talk to your doctor and say, hey, is it worth me having a genetic test? I'd like to know what my personal risk factors are. And so, and they can help you with that most of the time. So what if we have a listener out there that was diagnosed at the age of 42? At what age does her daughter need to start getting mammograms? That's a great question. That's a great question. So a rule of thumb is that the first degree relatives should begin screening 10 years prior to that presentation. So if a lady had breast cancer at 42, her daughter should start screening at 32. And, and screening for high-risk patients, you know, constitutes not only mammography, but also complete breast ultrasound is another option, and breast MRI. Breast MRI is, um, you know, what I think is really going to be very commonplace in the future. Um, now, those that are high risk, do they have to get um, screened more often than a year? So, like, do they alternate the MRI with the mammogram? Yes. Most commonly, if you are identified as a high risk patient, for example, if you have the NBN gene or CHECK2 or BRCA1 or BRCA2, you, you are screened at six-month intervals. So once a year, you have your mammogram, and once a year, you have your breast MRI. And usually, they separate those at six-month intervals. There's a lot of ways to do it. You know, um, Most of the time, you just can't have both on the same day for insurance reasons. But you know, as long as you're screened with both um, at, at 
you know, six month intervals. Some people choose complete breast ultrasound. For example, in areas where getting to a breast MRI is not feasible, and, but you can get breast ultrasound, you could have a complete breast ultrasound as long as it's done in an experienced person's hand, yeah. the ultrasound. So what about those um, people that have had breast augmentation? Can they still get mammograms? Yes. Um, yes. And it's very important that they do. Now, um, breast augmentation usually means implants. And, and what that constitutes are having is some extra views, four extra views to be exact. So you take the mammograms with the implants in place, and then they do what's called pushback views, where they push the implant out of the way as much as possible and pull the breast tissue out. Now, still, even though we do those mammograms and the extra views, there's still a percentage of the breast tissue that we never get to see. And that's where self-breast examination monthly comes in, periodic examination by your doctor, and tending to any new lumps or bumps or any areas of concern that you have, that's where that comes in. Pam, mm -hmm. I, I remember uh, back in my previous life when I worked at the Cancer Center talking about and seeing exactly the benefits of a breast MRI. Mm -hmm. Technology is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Our listeners may be thinking it's like, oh, when I hurt my knee and I went and got kind of put in this tube and it's very different. Um, you know, and, and, and they're able to take that, uh, the view that comes and it becomes a three-dimensional view that's rotated and around and can, can see every single area of the breast. I remember the first time I, I sat in one of the conferences and they were discussing a patient and it was kind of one of those things where had we not had this, we wouldn't have seen this, you know, very small tissue. When you look, when you look at it on regular mammogram, you don't see this area. And in the MRI view, there it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the MRIs are absolutely beautiful. And an MRI is really a simple thing. There's no radiation used at all in an MRI. So there should be no fear of that sort of thing. And, and all, all the MRI uses is, you know, just flipping hydrogen atoms, which, you know, it's, it's inconsequential to the person. Uh, so you, you go into an MRI and you lay on your stomach and with your arms outstretched in front of you, kind of like a Superman pose is what we call it. And then a very soft foam coil goes around the breast tissue. And in about 35 minutes, we have a breast MRI. Usually you're given uh, earphones to listen to music. It can be loud, but uh, you just kind of get used to that noise and you can hear the music in between. And then we put a little IV in the arm. And um, in the middle of the scan, we give a, a small injection of uh, what's called gadolinium. And gadolinium basically goes where the blood goes. So blood flow. And what the images produced uh, saturate or blacken out all the normal tissues and only show us what's abnormal, where extra gadolinium or extra blood flow goes. And uh, the images are gorgeous. And, you know, we've picked up uh, cancers that are two to three millimeters in size. I mean, pinhead size. Um, and, and, you know, uh, resulted in a surgery that's hardly even noticed by the patient in the long run. Mm 
you know, and, and that's exactly when you want to find a breast cancer, if you can, the, the smaller, the better, the earlier, the better. Speaking of imaging, um, I hear a lot about 3D mammography. Um, yes. What's that and what's the difference between the standard mammography? Right. 3D is also uh, called tomosynthesis or digital breast tomosynthesis. And it's not quite 3D at all. What it is, is uh, in, in the old timey days when we did 2D, it would be equivalent to, uh, I, here's how I explain it to my patients. If I put a little red ball in the middle of a loaf of bread and uh, then bake that loaf of bread, and then I ask them to look through the end of the bread to find the ball, they would say, I can't see it at all. But if I take then a knife and I slice that bread into one millimeter thick slices all the way down and let it fall open, could they find the little red ball? And the answer is, of course. Same thing with uh, tomosynthesis. What it does is instead of reading the breast tissue through from one side to the other full thickness, we're able to take it apart one millimeter slice at a time from side to side and from top to bottom. And we are, we uh, reveal, you know, much earlier, much smaller breast cancers in the long run, particularly when patients have dense breast tissue. And, and early on, when we talked about uh, tomosynthesis or 3D mammography, everybody said, oh, the benefit will be way much more in people with dense breasts. But we actually find it's way beneficial to every, every walk of life lady, no matter if they have dense breast tissue or fatty breast tissue. It's um, very much more sensitive and we pick things up earlier. We also avoid calling people back for unnecessary reasons because something that can look irregular when you compress the whole breast together, when you take it apart at one millimeter slices, you say, oh, well, that's just normal stuff. Okay, next case. So we're able to reduce the callback rate or, or the unnecessary additional imaging with the tomosynthesis. So how does it determine which one is ordered or who gets what? Right. Um, you know, most insurances, it was, it was uh, um, I can't remember exactly the date, maybe it was 2014, January, when it was all approved uh, through Medicare and Medicaid. And um, most insurances pay for 3D. It takes a little bit of time until insurances catch up with Medicare and Medicaid, but they did. Um, and so most centers have converted to 3D. And uh, only, you know, I'm not sure why anybody would opt out of that, but only if a patient says, no, I refuse the TOMO, I think, is when we would do the 2D. But there's a clear, clear benefit across the board in every study of doing TOMO synthesis over the 2D. Um, you know, so much so that some of the um, big trials that were initially set up to compare TOMO synthesis to regular 2D they ha they can't get people to um, doctors to want to participate in it because all the doctors are like no way I mean I wouldn't tell somebody not to get a 3D yeah you don't want to get have heard that you don't <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well
tell us, uh, Dr. Bentley, when we, we talked about when to start, right? You know, mm-hmm. the college of is 40 every year at 40 mm-hmm. years of age. When should someone expect to stop receiving a mammogram? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, too, uh, Ryan. And, and that can be very, very individualized. I mean, we have some people who are 85 and running their own business and, uh, you know, walking a mile a day. And I would say to that lady, don't stop. I mean, you know, um, there, you know, uh, and families. And patients can make their own decisions too. You know, if one is bound to a nursing home and they just don't want to uh, get out and get one, um, that's okay too. But there's no hard and fast rule on that. It's very, very personal and very individualized. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Especially if it's, you know, like you just said, in a nursing home, if you're homebound, um, things like that, where maybe a person makes the decision that if something was found, I probably wouldn't go through treatment at 94. So I'm just going to stop doing that. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. We talked about the different type of imaging. We didn't talk about the cost yet, but Ron, I know our foundation um, has some help for those that maybe this is a stressor for, maybe they don't want to go because they can't afford the mammogram. Right. Um, you want to talk about that? Yeah, you know, um, that's one of those things that cost is a barrier. And um, our foundation, you know, that that helps operate the, the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center really is about reducing barriers, whether it's travel or a simple cost for a mammogram. Um, you know, no one should have to decide if they're going to have a screening mammogram or not. Um, I can't tell you how many um, cancers are diagnosed annually um, based off of the, the funding that we provide for mammograms. I'm going to say it's probably double digit at least, um, you know, 10 to 12 um, annually that are, that are diagnosed. And it, it makes me really concerned to think, um, and for the most part, those are found um, when they're found, they're, they're stage one or stage two. Uh, not often are we finding stage three and four because I, th- I think we're doing such a good job and we is not me. Uh, we is uh, in general talking about uh, screenings and making sure and staying on top of that um, is that they're found early. And, um, you know, I would just encourage anyone who's listening that says, well, I haven't had a mammogram because I can't afford it, um, you know, to, to give the center a call. And we can put you in touch with the right the right program to assist with covering that mammogram. Of course, it's not uh, uh, um, never ending. It's not an endless bucket, uh, but we do uh, budget a very large, substantial amount of money annually uh, for that. Because if we're truly, truly focused on prevention and helping patients, that's an area that is an easy way to make happen. And I would, I would think, Dr. Bentley, you would certainly echo those, those sentiments. Yes, 100%. And, um, you know, during my four years uh, in, in Amarillo, I never saw so much compassion and so much effort uh, by the cancer centers um, there in order to help underprivileged people. And uh, it's really quite beautiful. Um, every, every person, um, that I ever saw who needed help, uh, got it. 
they they got it right and everybody was more than happy to um you know make sure that they would yes yeah. absolutely absolutely you know it's it's um it's very simple um it's not complex to get to get taken care of so uh definitely want to make sure everyone that is listening knows that uh whether you have insurance um, that's with a ginormous deductible that doesn't cover, you know, uh, wellness exams, or you don't have insurance. There is assistance out there. There is, you know, uh, Pam, let's shift gears for a second, because I had one time, I had Dr. Bentley speak uh, to a large group of practitioners on myths surrounding mammograms. And we certainly don't, this would be an, an entire podcast in and of itself, right? On just myths. There's so many myths out there. And we've touched on a few of them uh, already in the podcast. One of which is the pain. Uh, and then, you know, um, I think we touched on with radiation, but Dr. Bentley, if you could um, maybe highlight some of your most favorite ones and some of the most common ones that you hear for our listeners to kind of put those to rest. Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, many women will say, and I'll hear them say, well, I don't have anybody in my family who had breast cancer, so I can't have it either. And, and the truth is the majority of women who have a breast cancer at some point in their life don't have any family history or didn't know about it. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the other, the, another uh, common myth is, well, I don't feel any lumps, so I can't have a breast cancer. Well, we really don't want to find the breast cancer by the time there's a lump. We want to find it way before you do. So, um, you know, although physical self-breast exam is of utmost importance, even if you have a normal physical self-breast exam or you have a normal doctor's exam, you still need a screening mammogram uh, once a year. Um, another myth is, well, you know, it's just too much radiation. I don't want to subject myself to that kind of radiation. Um, but, you know, I learned way back ago in residency when the radio, when the radiation doses were probably a lot higher, um, that if you get on a flight from New York and land in California, you've received as much radiation to the breast as you would have in a mammogram. So, um, you know, I would never let radiation stop anybody from having um, a mammogram because the, the benefits so outweigh the risks of any kind of radiation. Um, um, and another really common uh, myth is uh, a lady who feels a lump or is having a symptom regarding, you know, her breast um, they'll kind of not tell anybody about it, sneak in for a screening mammogram, not say anything on the questionnaire, and then they'll assume if the read is normal, that it's all normal. And that's that's a myth, too. Um, so well, kind of like I'm going to let you I'm not going to tell you to look for this because something might be there. I'm going to let you see if you see it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's strange. That's like taking your car to the to the auto shop and it's making this loud clunky noise, <laughs> and yes. you take it in hoping they will find whatever this noise is without you telling them. Yep, yep. That's a very good analogy. Absolutely, Ryan. Uh, you know, the more information you share as a patient, 
the better the job your doctors will do and the technologists will do as well. Yeah. Sounds like it's important to communicate. Very important to communicate. Yes. We've heard that a time or two on this podcast. We have. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, and it hits home often. I find myself sometimes going, oh, we've talked about communication and that did, I did not put that into practice during that conversation. <laughs> How important is it um, for those that have been diagnosed with cancer and received breast radiation to get that follow-up um, mammogram after radiation? Yes, um, absolutely. On an annual basis to have routine screening mammography. And um, with your doctor, uh, you should discuss, well, am I, since I've had lumpectomy and radiation, what are my personal risk factors? Um, and should I be having continued high risk screening for the rest of my life? And that would entail, like we said, having also, in addition to your mammogram, um, having a breast MRI annually. And that's an important fact to, to discuss with your oncologist, your, your breast surgeon or family doctor. Mm -hmm. and is it, do they typically do a follow-up after radiation six months after completion of radiation? For yes, you, yes, usually they'll do lumpectomy and then uh, followed by radiation and then a six month time period where the patient can heal. And in the normal state of affairs and the usual state of affairs, uh, they'll have six month follow up mammograms for anywhere from two to three years, depending on the surgeon's preference. And um, now the unaffected breast will only have its mammogram once a year, but the affected breast every six months. And what we generally see is we see the radiation changes kind of reduced every six months. We'll see uh, a little bit more swelling go away. We'll be able to see the lumpectomy side a little better. A lot of um, the fluid collections will start to fade away and, and then we could, you get to a new baseline for the patient. What kind of screenings are recommended then for those that have had mastectomies, bilateral mastectomies? Yeah, and that's, that's a good fear that people have come to me here at the center and said, well, they're not, I'm not getting mammograms. So I feel like there's no screenings. Right. So there, there are a couple of different kinds of mastectomies. Uh, one is called, you know, a subcutaneous mastectomy um, that's done for, for example, high-risk patients. Angelina Jolie, she's BRCA1. So she, her mother had ovarian cancer, if I'm correct. And um, she elected to have bilateral uh, prophylactic means preventative um, mastectomies and implant reconstruction. And most of those patients who are high risk will have an annual breast MRI. Why? Because it's very difficult to image them with mammography because Remember, we talked about doing pushback views. In the instance of a mastectomy, there's really, you can't push it away from the skin. So they get high-risk um, breast MRIs once a year. And that is important because when you do prophylactic or preventative mastectomies, we, you know, the surgeons remove most all of the breast tissue, but it's not 100%. Nothing is. And then in the case of um, mastectomies with no reconstruction whatsoever, and some people like to have that where they just wear an external prosthesis. 
um, you know, they might still go through an annual breast MRI just to make sure that they don't have a chest wall recurrence. Um, and that also is kind of a surgeon or oncologist preference. Um, and then patients who have mastectomies with uh, flap reconstructions. We, we're seeing a lot of these these days where people who elect to have a mastectomy, they'll take abdominal fat with its vascular supply and place it on the chest wall to build a breast mound. And those are being done more and more. And those patients have beautiful results. They end up with a flat tummy and a complete reconstruction, and, and they're very happy individuals. And <laughs> They too may uh, want to undergo annual breast MRI or just go with physical exam, but yeah. So it's kind of up to the physician and the patient. It really is. It's kind of their decision on how they want to monitor. Yes. But it's always so good to be your own advocate. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be comfortable with whatever answer you're given. And if you at all feel like you want another opinion or you or you say, well, I'd feel better if I were screened, that's okay too. Um, you know, we all as patients never really feel like we have too much of a right to say what we want, but but we really do. We really do. And I, I encourage every person listening to say, okay, you know, make sure that you're completely at peace with whatever you are having done. Right. One thing you said, Dr. Bentley, that I want to go back to um, and just make a point and ask you, of course, um, to, to chime in. You, you talked about how um, uh, post-radiation, they have every six month or every scheduled intervals. Um, and it reminded me of something. Um, because you guys don't just take, unless it's their first mammogram, you guys don't just take this current mammogram and look at this and go, oh, yeah, everything's great. You, you take and you'll look and compare a lot of times to the previous year's mammogram or the, you know, which, which speaks to the continuity of every single year and you go to the same place because you have access to those previous mammograms, right? Yes, yes, that's a, that's a great question and a great point you bring up, Brian. Um, I always explain the importance of the continuity of your mammograms to patients like this. If you move out of state, you take your children's pediatrician records, right? You take the kids' shot records with you. Why? Because when you arrive at the next state and you go, here's my, here are my four kids, and they go, well, we have to know what they did before. And, and that's the same with the mammograms. Every single woman is different. And what's normal for you has to be tracked and compared to years and years. And so, um, you know, if you move somewhere, part of your you know, checklist should be, let me get a disc made with all my prior year's mammograms. It's completely easy to do. And then take it with you. And that way, we can look for subtle changes over time. I mean, there are certain, there are some breast cancers that are glaring abnormalities. And then there are some where you just sit back and you go, wait, let me pull up 2017 again. And you look at that and you go, oh no, that can't be right. So some changes are that subtle. 
that you just, you really have to go back. Now, um, it's so important that you get them every year because if we see a trend, some developing calcium deposits, one year it may look like one or two dots, and then the next year it may look like seven or eight. And that's, you know, signifies to us there's something going on. There's a change here, and we have to know uh, what that is. So, yes, um, seeing things what they were before is very important. The comparisons are everything. Good, good. That, that's important. I want to make sure that, that our listeners hear that. You know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about in this podcast, and it's been so educational, um, you've thrown a lot of acronyms out there, um, you know, BRCA1 and BRCA2, and, and, and all of that gets lumped into genetics. Can, yes. Let's, let's, and again, I think a genetic podcast, a, a whole podcast could be dedicated to genetics, but can you kind of give our listeners just maybe the, the, the quick topic kind of short version on genetics? Because um, I think this, we, we would be remiss if we didn't at least dive into a little bit of that. Yeah, good, good point. The genetics are something we are going to hear more and more and more about as the years go on. Why? Because the research that the researchers are doing is so fantastic. We're able to identify patients who carry a higher risk for certain cancers. And like um, uh, I mentioned earlier, 2015, before 2015, we knew about BRCA1 and BRCA2. We always knew there had to be more out there. But then after 2015, now we have a full arm's length. And each one of those little acronyms, BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, NBN, HALB2, um, all of those have individual cancers that are linked with them. Some are colon, some are endometrial, some are ovarian, some are pancreatic, some are breast, some are, you know, uh, rectal carcinoma, prostate carcinoma. And, and these are autosomal dominant traits. So that means that a, um, a person has of a parent, mother or father. So your father's family matters with breast cancer. It does. So if your paternal grandmother had breast cancer and paternal aunts, it matters. That's another little myth out there that says, well, nobody on my mom's side, it was all on my dad's. Well, your dad contributes 50% of your genetics, right? So um, they can pass it on. So when you start to just think about your family history and you think about people that you knew, um, it's important to do some asking because um, even people who don't have a first degree relative, if you start to kind of identify, well, Aunt Shirley had ovarian cancer and you know, Uncle James had prostate, and and then you start to have that conversation with your doctor. And here's the thing with genetics. It's so easy to get it tested. It's so easy. When, when genetic testing first came out, it was expensive. Now it is not expensive. It's about $300 for out-of-pocket to be tested for this whole line of genetic risk markers. And, and you say, well, what do I do anyhow, even if I have one? Well, here's what you do. Uh, most of the time, your insurance will say, hey, we see that you have this high risk, so we're going to pay for you to have 
colonoscopy every five years, not every 10. We're going to pay for a breast MRI every year. We're going to, um, you know, you can have a thin section CT to look for a pancreatic cancer so that we end up finding people's cancers far earlier than their symptoms would allow us to find them. So knowing your risk factors, and, and let me just tell you, when you think about genetics and knowing your own risk factors, you can say, oh, no, but I'm too afraid. But, our, but if you have a genetic marker, think about your children too, because now each of those children have a 50-50 chance if you're positive. So you kind of have to weigh all of that together in a decision. And I've, and I've talked to all sort of patients, some who say, oh, I absolutely want to know because I'm going to do something about every one of my risks. And then I've had patients say, well, no, I don't want to know at all. And usually what I say is as long as you are well-informed and you know how the genetics can affect you or your siblings, you know, um, if, if you have a genetic marker, your siblings should be tested because they'll have a 50-50 chance as well. But if you know that if you have a marker and that each of your children have a 50-50, sometimes that's a game changer for people. Sometimes people will go, Okay, yeah, whatever. It's not about me, but I don't want my daughter or my son or, you know, to go through anything like this in their life. So, um, and as long as you're an informed person, uh, it's the right decision. So there's no definite all right and all wrong. And um, so if someone is looking at their family history and they have all types of cancer, where do they begin to even go get genetic testing? And is it the person that has cancer has to get genetic testing first, then the siblings can get it? Right. So that's, those are great questions too. So the first thing, um, the first place to go, if you have some knowledge and you start thinking about this and you think about possibilities, should I get screened is you're going to go to your primary doctor, right? And whether that's your OB-GYN doctor or if it's a family doctor and you start asking and genetic testing is as simple as a tube of blood or spitting in a cup. You know, my at my center, we have partnered with a company that um, provides us with um, a detailed questionnaire that the patient fills out and they spin in a cup and then we seal it all up and we send it in. And it, in this particular company, they do all the checking with your insurance. And if insurance doesn't pay for it, or if insurance will charge, will only pay for less than $100 and say the patient's bill is going to be $101, they call the insurance, the uh, genetics company will call the patient directly and say, hey, your insurance isn't going to pay for it, but your portion on this bill will be $101. Do you want us to run the test? And then the patient will say, no. I can't afford the $101 or yes, I will pay the $101. And then they run the test. So, you know, just because you send away your blood or your spit or whatever does not mean by any stretch that you're going to be stuck with a big bill. Most of the time, the maximum on that genetic testing is like $300. So at least, you know, there's a bit of a ceiling. 
back ago, it, um, when genetic testing first started, I mean, we're talking about a decade ago, it was, it was about 3,000. And a lot of very good people fought in a lot of very good places to have that number reduced. And now it is to $300. So um, you start with your primary care doctor. Many of the OBGYN doctors are very well-versed in genetic testing because women are, um, you know, the breast and ovarian cancers. But uh, yeah, also for your brothers and sons, you know, many of these genetic markers have um, colon, prostate, and so forth. Yeah. Pam, I'm hearing be informed, which is also being educated. We've talked at great lengths about those on numerous podcasts. And then advocating for yourself comes up again. It oh, yes. seems like these, these threads are very, very common with all of our uh, podcasts, and we cannot encourage our listeners enough to be uh, in those two areas, right? That's right. Absolutely. Yes. You, 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 you know, if you have questions and, and we can help you, give us a call at the center. We can help try to, you know, we're not going to naturally tell you what to do. We're not going to tell you where to go but we can point you in resource directions. If you have questions about that, give us a call at the center. Again, our number is 806-331-2400. Uh, we will do our best to help you with that. And I tell you, it's one of those things where um, this whole podcast has been incredibly educational. You know, you, you talk about, oh, we're going to talk about mammograms and it's October and it's pink and who knew? I mean, we kind of knew, but didn't really know um, all the pieces and parts that go into uh, the various things that are being an advocate for yourself. That's right. Absolutely. Lots of information out there. Just make sure that you advocate for, advocate for yourself. And, you know, that it's also important, you know, some listeners might think, well, I'm a survivor. Why do I need to know this information? It's important that you share it with your family members or and your daughters, whoever it might be, and so that they can educate themselves as well. Well, Dr. Bentley, that was very educational for myself and I really appreciate you coming on. And one of our last segments that we like to leave on is um, Pete's Powerful Moment. We are sponsored by Pete's CarSmart uh, Kia. Do you have a powerful moment for us? Yes, you know, looking back in my, uh... 21 years of practicing in the community, there are so many aha moments and there are so many patients that I remember and I've learned from and I just loved, I mean, every minute. There are so many. Um, uh, here, here's a recent one, though, uh, very, very recent uh, lady who was having bloody nipple discharge um, back in the fall. And uh, she knew she was having bloody nipple discharge. Uh, her physician didn't make too, too much about it, not too, too worried about it. And usually, you know, um, usually breast problems, you know, are brought directly to the attention of the radiologist in the form of a diagnostic mammogram right? Because we'll do special things on that day to look for, we know when people say bloody nipple discharge, what we need to look for. 
Well, she called uh, a local center, uh, not mine, and, and uh, couldn't get in for diagnostic for three weeks. So she decided that was too long to wait. She would just go for a screening mammogram the next day. The screening mammogram was read out as normal. She on purpose didn't say anything about the bloody nipple discharge. And that was last fall. And then it went on and on and on. And, you know, then January comes along and she, she's bothered a little bit more by it. And then February and then March, she sees a breast surgeon. Finally, she comes across uh, with a breast MRI. And uh, lo and behold, um, you know, it's ductal carcinoma in situ. And it's, it's uh, involving a large portion of the breast. So, um, it, but it didn't have any of the typical features on the mammogram. So had she had come, come at the beginning of this, uh, radiologists know enough to say, gee, if the mammogram's negative or normal and the, and the ultrasound's normal, but we still haven't identified the cause, next step would be a breast MRI. So, you know, uh, could we have avoided that half a year of time loss? For sure, for sure. Uh, so that that kind of you know broke my heart. Now she's gonna be fine. I mean, but uh, still, in all, you know, we can find things earlier with more information, and if you bring it to the attention of your doctors. Sure, you know that's really one of those things that is a powerful reminder as much as it is a, a powerful moment, because that's important to uh, just, again, communicate. Communicate with your physician, uh, be persistent, be persistent. That's that's very important. Uh, I, I think this is uh, one of those podcasts, Pam, that maybe some of our listeners may go back and listen to a time or two uh, to get all of the information together um, to present to you know a family member or a friend, but they could certainly do that a whole lot easier, right? They can just share our podcast with their friends. That's right. They can hit all the buttons. Exactly. Subscribe, share, like our podcast. You know, we want you to also leave us a review. Uh, we continue to provide, hopefully, very educational information for you guys. And if there is something that you think, you know, I want to hear from so-and-so, or I think this should be a great topic, please let us know. We are here. This is a service we're doing for you. This is not, I mean, it's fun. I, we, we learn a lot. Um, but I think it's important to, to make sure that we're providing material that you guys want to listen to. So let us know. Let us know how we can better serve you. Dr. Bentley, it's great to have you on. It's great to visit with you again. Um, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. And it's been wonderful talking to both of you. And I completely admire everything you guys are doing and keep up the great work. Great work. Well, thank you. We we love what we do. We love the folks we serve. Uh, we're always looking for new ideas and new activities and programs. And uh, one last thing, Pam, it would be uh, a shame if we did not mention that everything that we do at the Cancer Survivorship Center is what, Pam? Free. It is 100% free. Complimentary. Uh, please pick up, uh, you know, follow us on, on Facebook. Uh, if you're not receiving our emails regularly of, of the activities and programs we have, shoot us an email, give us a call, let us know, we'll get you to the mailing list. And of course, 
be back next week for another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.